0: It's indeed a joyful delight that we each have today with a wonderful blessing of health and livelihood and other matters that allow us to come together on the footstool of our wonderful God of heaven and to offer worship and obeisance and marvelous praise to his name. As was mentioned earlier in the announcements, we're certainly appreciative of the presence of each and every one, our regular membership, our visitors alike, and we certainly hope everyone has a lovely and wonderful day to start our week off in a proper and right fashion, that we might be wonderful servants of the God of heaven. We have been for several weeks now looking at the New Testament from the following perspective, namely an overview of that marvelous document. It goes without saying that the single finest document ever given to the human family is the 27 books of the New Testament. It's the only document that can lead one from this life to heaven, the only document that provides the fail-safe means of proper living here, the only document that tells the truth about the nature of God's love for the human family. We have set before ourselves the task of overviewing the 27 books of that document. We have, to this point, come from Matthew all the way through 2 Peter, And in that effort, we have tried to highlight the major themes and ideas of each book so that we'd be better able to appreciate the major message and the powerful ideas contained within it. We, of course, come today to the book of 1 John. And as we begin to take note of this document and the couple or so that follow it, might we remember the overview or the division of this wonderful book, namely the New Testament. The life of Jesus is taught to us in four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They highlight the single greatest life ever lived and the only perfect life ever lived. Then in the book of Acts, we see the testimony of New Testament history, the only New Testament book of history. And in that book, we learn about the establishment of the church, how to become a Christian, and wonderful godly living that starts in Romans and continues through Jude. In fact, in these books of Romans through Jude, we find day by day how to have proper thoughts, proper speech, proper actions. In fact, it's Bible-based living that is surrounded by Christ and bound toward heaven. And that's what we each desire and want. Today, as we come then to 1 John, we arrive at a five-chapter book, a book that in some ways has some interesting discussions related to it from the following angle. We know that John wrote it, that beloved apostle of love, the brother, in fact, of James, son of Zebedee. And as John was that apostle of love, this book sets before us one of the most well-known descriptions of God. 1 John 4 verse 8, God is love. There is a difficulty, though, to say that God is love. On the other hand, must be met by this statement, 1 John 1 verse 8. He that saith he has no sin, he deceiveth himself, and the truth is not in him. So there's God the lover, and there's man the sinner. How do we reconcile them? In fact, that's the major theme of the entirety of the Bible from Genesis 3.15 onward. How to get God the lover with man the sinner to be reconciled to him so that eternal life can be enjoyed and all the promises of all that can be appreciated. The book of 1 John in five chapters highlights that discussion. There is an additional background, however, related to some false teaching that had become rather rampant by the time John wrote this letter. It is known as Gnosticism, and there's a silent G that begins it, so it doesn't sound like the way it's spelled. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism is a rather interesting kind of ancient belief. It basically had to do, if we may be brief about it, the following... It taught that the spirit is good, the flesh is evil, and for that very reason, when Jesus came into the world, since he was God, he could not have had a fleshly existence. That is to say, he was in some kind of a ghost form, but anyway, he was not in flesh as you and I are. We can well imagine the false ideas that must directly come from such thinking to divorce the nature of Christ's existence upon earth from the fact that he was in the flesh. John starts the book immediately by refuting any such idea as that. Verse number 1 of 1 John chapter 1, That which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled of the word of life. John highlights the fact we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. He had to be in the flesh. And thus, he quashes the Gnostic idea immediately, but he's only getting warmed up. In verse number 3, he again points out the fact we saw, we heard, we handled and touched. This Jesus was, in fact, the word of life, and he is deity. In fact, the opening phrase of verse 1, he was from the beginning... He had no creative aspect in the sense that he was created. He is eternal. Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal. For that reason, might we notice what the implications are for us. As it was for them in verse number 5. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It's still a fascinating thing to distinguish and to appreciate the contrast between light and dark. We each know that when it's dark, we stumble around, we cannot see the dangers that are before us. We are in a position of, at most, having limited information and limited knowledge. John quickly identifies there is no such thing as a special knowledge bequeathed to only some that would be respecters of God. He says, God is light. And Jesus, earlier in John eight twelve said, I am the light of life. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That light's made available to us through the word of the sacred scriptures, the teaching of God, for God is light and this word is His. That fascinating thought emanates to verse number 7. We mentioned a minute ago the issue of God being love and man being a sinner. So how is that sin to be cleansed? How is it to be forgiven? Is it through prayer? Is it through wishful thinking? Is it through some other act of a physical sacrifice as it was in the Old Testament? Listen to the inspired apostle. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. There's the cleansing agent for sin. The blood of Christ. It is thus necessary to contact that blood by the appropriate described means in the New Testament. But once that blood is contacted, the verb is cleanse. And notice it's present tense, active voice. That means that that blood continually cleanses so long as we walk in the light. There is a day by day continual cleansing by the blood of Christ for you and me when we do that which the Lord has commanded and we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. That power of the word cleanse is indeed remarkable, isn't it? That gives us the character of being able to live powerfully and faithfully. Knowing that with Christ's blood constantly cleansing us, no wonder we can look forward to a home in heaven without the fear of perhaps slipping and falling at a moment, understanding not that the blood of Christ is there to make things whole and right for us. In verses 8 through 10 of 1 John 1, we are reminded again of the reality of human sin, the fact that you and I are not perfect, sinless beings in this flesh. Now let us quickly note what we mean by that. We've just stated Christ's blood cleanses us from sin. But that doesn't mean that you and I are thus those who never again are engaged in sin. We know that we make mistakes. We, in fact, are those who have impure thoughts to cross our mind, perhaps. Or we speak things that we ought not speak in ways we ought not speak them. We do things that should not be done. And what's more, we leave undone that which we ought to do. That is sin by definition. But here's the wonderful part. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9. Thus, when we live a life of walking in the light, verse 7, we have the appreciative fact that when we understand that we sin, we ought to, of course, confess and to repent of that to God. But we should understand that even if it be something of which we can appreciate not a direct, presumptuous knowledge. We can still understand Christ's blood cleanses us from that sin. That gives us powerful, confident living, doesn't it? For why can that happen? Verse number two, or verse one of chapter two. These things write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John said he wrote that you might not sin. Did that mean then that those who received and heard this letter never again would sin? Well, apparently not. For he said, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with a father. That's a lovely idea. The word advocate is a legal term. It means literally in the Greek, one call to stand beside you and I as sinners are those who, quite frankly, would have no hope to stand before a just God in heaven. But yet there's one standing beside us. He is the Son of God. He's guiltless. He's pure. He's holy. He is a atoning sacrifice for my sins and yours. We, by our obedience to his gospel, have called him to our side. He stands at our aid to bring and beseech our cause to the Father in heaven. And could there ever be a better defending attorney than that? Isn't it wonderful to think that God has made provisions to provide for us what we never could have provided for ourselves, the laws of our land, such that they guarantee that one has the right to an attorney. That's, in fact, in the Miranda rights that are read to a criminal when he's arrested. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Notice that doesn't say anything about the quality of that defending attorney. Friend, you and I have the finest defending attorney that could ever be provided the Son of God, who has been in the flesh like we have been, and yet He lived it perfectly, and thus He can be for us a powerful, succoring aid, Hebrews 2.18, that can lead us to eternity. On we go in chapter 2. For in verses 3 and 4, we learn something dramatic and how sad and tragic it is that so many in the world have failed to appreciate the thrust of these two verses. He begins by carefully noting... He, namely Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation means atoning sacrifice. The Lord paid the price for me at Calvary just as he did for you. He is and was the sacrifice for our sins, but not just for a limited few, for all who will come to him in obedient faith. And thus the conclusion of verse 4 If we say we know him and keep not his commandments, we are a liar, and his truth is not in us. Could there ever be a more directly powerful phrase than that? And that's not the words of merely me. Those are inspired scripture. That person who claims to know the Lord and yet does not do what he says is a liar. The Holy Spirit said that. And isn't it a shame that so many who obviously teach and practice and believe that which this book does not teach yet claim to know Him, we can rest assured according to the prescriptions of John that that's not true. For if you know Him, you will keep His commandments. We see quickly thus in chapter number 2. That, that leads us to see that there are no exemptions in that. There are things that older men and younger men and older women, younger women, each of us have duties and obligations. And among those are these, verses 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever do you and I want to live forever then then that means we must not love this world it has its allurements and it has its things that offer lusts and temptations and things that are attractive may we never forget that the one in control of these things is of course the devil himself he is the god of this world second corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4 he is indeed the prince of the power of the air. He is that one who, in fact, casts fiery darts at the saints, Ephesians six eleven and following. Can we understand then that we must not find the height and the answer to the mission of our being here upon this earth? Maybe Solomon still said it best in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. As wonderful as that statement is, it is still a fact of temptation that Satan presents many things to attract us to this world. Notice in verse 18 of chapter 2, the Antichrists were active and alive in John's day. We are not those who still look for an Antichrist to come. They have been around for 20 centuries. Doesn't that in fact put an end to much of the premillennial dogma? Antichrists, John says, are alive and well in my day. 1 John 2, 18 through 22. Those facts lead us to close chapter 2 by noting this promise. Verses 24 and 25. How do you and I thus, as Christians, remain pleasing before God? Three verbs are given in verse 24. We must continue, we must abide, and we must remain. And when those three things describe our life as it relates to faith... We shall be pleasing unto God, and the promise of verse 25 will be ours. And this is the promise that He hath promised us, even eternal life. If you and I miss heaven, we've missed everything. We have missed everything. That wonderful promise that God has thus in store for us just heightens our anticipation of chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. For in that text we read that when He shall come, namely Christ, we shall be like Him. We look forward to that day when in that great morning of resurrection we can rise to receive the eternal reward at the judgment bar of God. We shall be like Him. In being like Him, we immediately find the most concise of all Bible definitions about sin. 1 John 3 verse 4. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Here is the Bible's definition of sin. It is... A transgression of the law of God. And it matters not whether that transgression is by direct commission or by omission. It is still a violation of his law, isn't it? And therefore is sin. As one appreciates thus the nature of what Christ accomplished, in verse 8 of this chapter, we read this interesting description of the work of our Savior. Notice again that the devil sinneth from the beginning... Notice, he's been the enemy of God from the very outset of the biblical description. And the very close of verse 8 gives us a great thing accomplished by Jesus. For this cause, this purpose, if you will, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came, that the devil's works might be destroyed. And how wonderfully at Calvary that was accomplished. And how wonderfully through the gospel ministration all can tie on to God, inherit that promise of eternal life, and be a faithful follower of the divine. The realization of that thought leads us to ask, how is that implemented in life? It's implemented in the following way. One of which, the understanding in verse number 12. Marvel not my brethren if the world hate you. Since Satan's in control of the physical affairs here in terms of what men believe, you and I as followers of God understand those will not harmoniously mesh. The world is going to hate what you and I stand for. It's going to hate the thinking that we have. As such, we see that must not deter our benevolence. Verses 17 and 18. Appreciative the fact that the love of God does not dwell in those who shut up the bowels of compassion from others. We've been studying on Wednesday night about the nature of benevolence and how wonderful the Bible tells us about having a heart that is touched with compassion and concern for those in in destitute cases. As chapter 3 closes in verse 22, we are reminded about the nature of prayer. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him. Why? Because we keep His commandments. We, you and I, should not expect God to so favorably answer our prayers if we refuse to keep His commandments. If we are separate and apart from Him, God has not promised to grant us the petitions we've asked, but if we are faithful followers of His, not only will He hear Psalm 34, verses 89, but He will also respond in faith to those requests that you and I have made. As chapter 3 closes, we see again the importance of belief, and the nature of what that leads us to see in verse 1 of chapter 4. In 1 John 4 verse 1, we go back to the case of these Gnostic teachers and any other false teachers that there might be. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. You can almost appreciate a tear running down the face of John who was alive and well and saw Jesus nailed to a cross, and yet there are those who pervert the gospel. Not to think that it's still the gospel once it's perverted because it isn't. Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. Many false prophets are gone out into the world. We have to test them, try them, adopt and believe only those true things that are taught and spoken, and hence may you and I pass spoken things through the sieve of the gospel and only support and approve those preachers and others who teach and stand four square on the truth of God. The reason that's so significant, God is love. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. It, with God being love, He's offered salvation to man. But it's a salvation that must be met by the faith of man, and without that proper obedience, there is no forgiveness of sin. In fact, verse number 4 of this chapter, First John chapter 4, Might we appreciate that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world? Are there times that you and I feel in despair and discouragement? Satan is too powerful and temptations are too strong. Friend, it isn't so. The one who is able to embody you and me and quicken our life is stronger than he that is in this world. In Mark chapter 3, verses 27 and following, Jesus, in direct discussion, said, The strong man is here, but there is a greater than the strong man. The strong man was the devil. The one greater than the strong man was Jesus. He is here. May we never think that we are at the whim and fancy of the devil and that we can't defeat him. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, verse 8. As chapter 4 rolls onward, we have a beautiful text in verses 11 and 12. The realization, in fact, herein is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That text sounds a great deal like Romans 5, 8, doesn't it? We didn't deserve the blood of Christ. We didn't deserve the gift of the Son of God, but He sent Him anyway because He loved us. And when Christ died for my sins and yours, he paid the opportunity and the cost that we can, in fact, live faithfully with him both here and hereafter. As that chapter closes, notice verses 17 and 18. The understanding that perfect love casteth out fear. And the understanding of verse 21. The realization, isn't it, that we ought to love one another. We often at Pippin pray that we might love one another that we might understand the bond of Christian fellowship. That's a wonderful prayer indeed. And so into chapter 5 we proceed. God's commandments, the statements of our Savior described in verse 3 in words like this. The understanding, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. The commandments that God has given are for our benefit, and we can keep them, we can abide by them. It's not impossible. They're not grievous. In verse 4, we're reminded of a song that we sometimes sing. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world is the song we sing. What is that item or entity that overcomes the world? Our faith. In fact, may we appreciate faith, the loveliness and power of it. The witness of the remaining parts of, verse, of chapter 5 remind us of the truth of God's Word and the assurance of salvation. Verse number 13 puts it in language like this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Here was something that they could know that they were saved. You and I, when we walk in the faith, when we walk, in fact, in chapter 1, verse 7 of the same book, when we walk in the light we can also know that we are saved and that there's a home in heaven waiting for us. That kind of knowledge is penetrating, compelling indeed. And so as that chapter closes, we are warned about prayer in verses 16 and 17. That is to say, the understanding that there are some things for which we should be careful not to pray. That is to say, we couldn't rightly pray for someone to be saved who will never obey the gospel. Those are not the terms of salvation. And isn't it still true in verse 17 that all unrighteousness is sin? And the book closes abruptly. Little children, keep yourselves from idols, verse number 21. Idolatry can be just as rampant and just as terrible today as it ever was. We may not bow down to a little wooden or stone shrine, but it's easy to bow down to the God of money or the God of professional acumen or the God of fame or popularity, any of those things could be just as devilish toward us as were those little shrines of Old Testament days. And with that, this marvelous five-chapter book closes. In the book of Second John, we also have another writing from the pen of the Apostle John, a one-chapter book indeed, but oh, how wonderful. Would you quickly take a journey with me through the book of 2 John as we appreciate some of the wonderful ideas shared within it and use them to challenge ourselves about some of the things that we've even seen touched upon in 1 John. The opening verse tells us this was written to the elect lady. The Greek word that's there is the word kyria, K-Y-R-I-A. It would appear to me that was the proper name of the lady to whom this book was written. We learn much about this wonderful person. First of all, she was a mother, and in verses 3 and 4, might we note that her children are mentioned, and John's desire was that they would continue to walk in truth. In fact, one quickly gains the appreciation that truth was a careful and powerful idea for John. In fact, in the very first few verses of this chapter, there are five references to the word truth. We shouldn't bypass then the thought. What about your family and mine? Are we walking in truth? If we aren't, then there's something yet to be done. There's work to be accomplished. John's greatest highlight in these opening four verses is that Kyrie and her children were walking in truth. Notice that there's many things in which one can walk in life. There's popularity in the community. There's fame and fortune, but that wasn't of concern to John. His greatest delight for Kyrie and her children were that they were walking in truth. May the same be said of you and me. To comment on that is to notice in verses 5 and following, John brings to her mind the thought there's not a new commandment, but rather love one another. The amazing feature of how powerful a bond there exists between those who love one another. In Beginning in verse 7, we notice John issues a warning to her. There were many deceivers and antichrist in the world in her day. Doesn't sound like much has changed, does it? Many who will deceive in that they'll take the scriptures and twist them, as we learned last Lord's Day morning, Second Peter three verses fifteen and sixteen. May we understand though that just as that warning was given to Kyria, don't be deceived. Rather, verse eight, look to yourselves. You and I each have a degree of responsibility. Read this book. Study it. Rightly divide and interpret it. Look to yourself. When we arrive at that golden judgment bar of God, there will not be any possibility of blaming it on God. God, why didn't you do something else to aid me to be saved? God will say, I sent my son. What more do you want? You didn't deserve what I did do, and yet in grace and in mercy I sent my son for you. Look to yourselves. First, second John verse 8. That means, for one thing, this, verses 9, through, verses 9 through 11. He begins by saying, You and I should not go onward or go beyond, for anyone who does does not have the doctrine of Christ nor of God. And he goes on to say, Don't bid Godspeed speed to those that are false teachers, for if you do, you're a partaker of their evil deeds. Is it any wonder, then, that you and I must be cautious as to who we extend fellowship to, those to whom we are willing to support for we will be just as guilty at judgment as they if we support them in their propagation of that which is evil no wonder then our elders and all of us must be cautious about who we support the manner in which we use the funding of god and the open decree of fellowship it cannot be extended scripturally beyond those that are the faithful of god with that, the book closes, and John says, I hope to come and visit you. He wanted in person to visit Kyria and her family. And in a very quick way, that brings us to Third John, another one-chapter book, which in a way is the story of three people. As we quickly appreciate the thrust of Third John, Gaius was the person who received this letter, also written by the Apostle. As Gaius received it, he was highly complimented for having extended mercy and also hospitality to those that were strangers, verses 5 and 6. John highly complimented Gaius and in fact even urged him in these words in verse 2 of that chapter, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest be in health, and that thy soul prosper even as thy soul prospereth. Isn't it interesting, though, to see that the name is mentioned in verse 7? There is a name that you and I wear. We should be so proud of it. It's the name Christian. It wears the name of the Son of God. And for the cause of that name, hospitality by Gaius was accomplished. However, there is an opposition in verse 9. A man named Diotrephes. Diotrephes loveth to have the preeminence among us. And in verse 10, he desired the preeminence to the point that he even forbade some to teach and cast them out of the church. Here was a man who wanted to be the master. He wanted to have the pride and the arrogance of controlling and dictating the body. John said, I'll remember his deeds when I come. Verse 10, we should understand that we must be individuals of humility. Individuals without arrogance and pride. We should be humble servants of the God of heaven. For isn't it still the case in regard to that humility that when we are humble, it says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. James 4, verses 7 and 8. Third John lists one other person. After encouraging us to follow that which is good, he lists an example, namely Demetrius, verse number 12. You and I should be like Demetrius and not like Diotrephes. We should be individuals who follow and imitate that which is good. Is my life and yours an open testimony of what's good? Can others look at my life and yours and see an example of what is good, what to follow, what not to follow? And yet again, the book abruptly closes with John desiring to come and visit to see how Gaius was doing and then personally, in fact, spend some time with him. With all of that stated, the book of Jude is the last of our considerations this morning, very briefly. In 25 verses, we have what may be a breathtakingly powerful New Testament book. In fact, Jude opens the book as we appreciate him being the half-brother of our Lord. And he writes initially with the intent of addressing the common salvation, verse number 3. But he changed his mind. He said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, I found it needful to exhort you to earnestly contend for the faith, which was once for all time delivered to the saints. Jude verse 3. The understanding of Jude then is he initially had desired to write on a topic related directly to salvation and the common nature of it. But he said, I came to earnestly understand that I should write to you to earnestly contend for the faith. That word earnestly means with great effort and with much diligence. Notice how the faith is described. The faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. There is not a multiplicity of faiths. And there is no later additions to it as some may teach in our world. The faith is 2,000 years old now. May we earnestly contend for that faith. And here's the reason that adverb earnestly is so important. In the next three verses, he lists three examples of those who began the journey faithfully but then fell aside from it. He starts with the children of Israel that left Egypt. He says, God saved them. They left Egypt, but yet how many have entered Canaan? How many entered the land of promise? They fell by the wayside because of unbelief. In the book of Numbers, we learn that 603,550 fighting men left Egypt. Of that number, two entered Canaan. That's not a high percentage. Two out of 603,550. Jude's point is, you and I must earnestly contend for the faith, for if we apostatize, we'll be lost, just like they who left Egypt and never entered Canaan. Next example, the angels that left their early habitation, their first habitation and sinned. They aren't saved either. Finally, Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19. Here were these places who God extended the opportunity to but yet they wouldn't hear. And they were destroyed with fire and brimstone, Genesis 19, verse 24. As that point is presented, the next few verses highlight false teachers, what they teach and how empty their words are. And then he, in verses 14 and 15, makes this point. I've always thought it's one of the most powerful verses in all the New Testament. Jude uses the word ungodly four times in one verse. Four times in one verse. Can there be any question then that there was ungodliness in the former days? There is still ungodliness rampant today. Jude says that there's coming a time the Savior will come and deal with that ungodliness. The last few verses of this book then highlight the personal responsibility that's ours. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith, verses 20 and 21. Snatch them out of the fire, those that are headed toward the devil's hell. I use the gospel and snatch them from the fire, verses 22 and 23. And then abruptly the book closes with one of the most beautiful benedictions to be found anywhere, making note of the faultlessness of Christ and the way we can be presented to Him and the fact that He has all dominion and majesty and power and might. It all belongs to Him. Does He have your life today in possession? We've noticed that we're not to love the world but rather we're to give our lives over in open obedience to the cause of the very one who died for us. These books we've studied today have been penetrating and compelling, but they must meet with our response in obedient faith. What about you today, friend? Are you a faithful New Testament Christian? Have you allowed Christ to wash your sins away, and do you still live faithfully at His side day by day? He wants to be your advocate with the Father and He wants to be that individual who will ensure that you, with a knowledge and assurance of salvation, will stand pleasing before God. If we could help you today to render obedience faithfully to Him, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized, we could certainly aid you with those latter two. If you have done that but need to return to your first love, We'd be happy, just as we noted earlier, to aid you in that open confession and prayer. We'd be honored to help you in either of those ways. And if we can do so, wouldn't you let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?